and welcome to Edie's Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on today's episode, which is all about green finance, ESG and the TCFD. UXIF Chief Executive James Alexander takes a bird's eye view of what the investor community wants from COP26. ING's Global Head of Sustainable Finance, Leonie Shreve, provides her learnings on engagement and divestment on the journey to alignment with the Paris Agreement. And Inspired Energy's Director of ESG Disclosures, Rosemary DeVos, looks at ESG disclosure trends, including reporting in line with the TCFD. Yes, a very warm welcome to you all this sunny July day. Um, so a pinch punch first podcast of the month and so on and so forth. Thank you for tuning into this episode, which is kindly being sponsored by Inspired Energy. I'm Edie's senior reporter and honorary podcast secretary, Sarah George. And today I'm all alone here in the virtual Edie podcast recording studio. Um, Matt Mace, our content editor, is at a stag do at present, I believe, and Luke Nichols, our content director, is squirrelling away preparing for the bumper week of virtual events that we have planned for the week beginning July 12th. Um, One of these events, our Sustainable Investor Conference, is the inspiration for this episode. Hosted in an all-virtual format for the second year running, this two-day event is taking place for 2021 on July 13th, that's a Tuesday, and July 14th, that's the Wednesday. The aim is to convene experts and professionals from across all parts of the financial system for lively debates, discussions and workshops, covering topics such as the green recovery from COVID-19, redefining ESG leadership, scaling impact investing for good, scaling green bonds and changing disclosure rules. If you are sitting here waiting for me to name drop before you're interested, you're in luck. We've got experts from Aviva Investors, BlackRock Investment Stewardship, Citigroup, UBS Investment Management, BMP Pariba Asset Management, WWF, and that's to name but a few. You can find a full agenda, full list of speakers, and reserve your tickets today at event.ed.net slash investor. That's event.ed.net slash investor. Our first guest speaker for this episode, UXIF Chief Executive James Alexander, is also on that speaker roster, so I hope this episode will give you a bit of a flavour of what's coming up in less than two weeks' time at that conference. I'm going to kick off with James's interview, purely because I feel like it acts as a great snapshot of how the sustainable investment conversation has been changing in recent months, and how this community is striving to now send clearer, more unified messages to policymakers ahead of COP26 in November. For those unfamiliar with UXIF, it's essentially an organisation that brings together people all over the UK's sustainable finance community. All key parts of the financial sector are represented in its membership. So they have banks, pension providers, insurers, asset owners and many other kinds of organisations. UXIF members collectively represent more than £10 trillion of assets under management. The organisation recently launched its policy vision, outlining the benefit of the upcoming net zero strategy to the financial sector. Um, That vision also recommended climate mandates for the Treasury and the National Infrastructure Bank and reacted to proposals for mandatory climate risk disclosures, which I'm sure will crop up a fair few times in this episode. In this interview, James, that I'll play for you in just one moment, we'll cover all of these topics and a few more, including nature risk disclosures on the horizon 
and how we can go beyond standalone green bonds and loans to create a green financial system in full. So without further ado, here is that interview with James. Afternoon, James. It's great to see you again. How are you? And you too, Sarah. It's great. I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm doing very well. How are things with you? I'm feeling, I'm feeling more relaxed now the weather has become uh, closer to what I would call a summer. <laughs> oh, it's less relaxing to me. I just want to be outside, but I know the midges love me too much for me for me to be out <laughs> for me to be outside. But at the same time, it is just nice to have more vitamin D and to wake up and it's nice and bright and go to sleep while. Well, we're still watching the sunset really absolutely um, so <laughs> yeah the, the swings and roundabouts really um and delighted to be to be obviously spotlighting green finance and sustainable investment um at the moment and to have uk sif on for this um i know that we've spoken before but i know it's your first time on the podcast as ceo there um so it'd be great to hear a little more about how you came to that role at at, at the organisation and I know that you worked at C40 Cities before that right? Absolutely yeah so so it's yeah I guess it's been a the last seven years I worked at C40 Cities which is um, for people that don't know it it's, a, it's an, a network of the biggest cities in the world it's about 100 cities basically all the cities you've ever heard of in the world you know across each continent so um, uh, you know very nicely distributed around the world and uh, my job there over the last seven years was leading all of the work being done by the cities to help pay for the infrastructure needed to become more sustainable and actually more resilient to the effects of climate change because a lot of those cities are you know in coastal regions actually very vulnerable to, to sea level rise um, and so what we were doing was basically helping those cities to overcome the financing barriers. Um, one of the challenges being, of course, that there's a huge amount of infrastructure cities want to build, whether it's transport connections or um, flood defences or LED streetlights, all these sorts of things. Um, and uh, but, but the capacity in cities to structure transactions and to get a transaction to a point where an investor is remotely interested is, in particularly in developing countries, is very low capacity. So, so we created a project called the C40 Cities Finance Facility. It's currently still going, structuring a billion dollars worth of infrastructure transactions in cities across the world. Um, also did a lot of work with cities on their pension funds. Cities wanted to make their pension funds more sustainable. Um, and worked at the UN level on international climate finance issues as well. So all of that kind of is really nice tie into to, to Arxif because it was focusing on climate change and some of the big issues related to climate change and looking, of course, um, at the financing piece. Um, and then that is a membership organisation. Obviously, so is Arxif. Um, and my whole career has actually been membership organisations in various different leadership roles. So actually fits really nicely, all those different hats um, to now leading Arxif, which is an organisation I'm really proud to be uh, to be chief executive of. And, uh, you know, got an amazing team here and incredible members. Um, and I really, really feel very lucky to be involved in Arxif, actually. Mm-hmm. No, I was recapping on membership just ahead of this cause. And for anyone that wasn't aware of the organisation, it's, yeah, it is pretty big. Currently more than 240 members and affiliates um, altogether. So I think it would be fair to say that you guys have a pretty bird's eye view of what's going on um, across the sector. And with that in mind, and um, with the fact that these podcast interviews are quite um, quite brief, I'd love to hear about some of the things that are at the top of your policy wish list. So the wish list of those 240 plus organisations um, ahead of COP26. Yeah, it's great. And, uh, you know, just, just to quickly talk about Arxiv's members, we've got 
as you say, 240 members. I think we're now actually we're getting some new members in as well. We're now up to about 270, which is great. And um, and that's I said we're a big tent, so that that's the entire anyone that touches sustainable finance at all, um, ranging from banks to asset managers through to asset owners, as well as service providers, financial advisors, even some not-for-profits, law firms, and and accountancy firms are members of Oxif. And um, collectively, it's about 10 trillion pounds of assets under management. So we so we do pack a punch, and that's one of the things that's really exciting. So this year, earlier this year, we published a new policy vision. Um, it was a really collaborative process um, across the entire Q1 um, to engage our members. We had over 100 members engaged in that. Um, and it focused on lots of different policy areas because we we look at not just the climate change aspect of ESG, but actually the entirety of ES and G. Um, so we're focusing on, on, of course, net zero. We're focusing on uh, biodiversity in nature. We're looking at things like modern day slavery. We're looking at things like uh, equality and diversity and other kind of um, really important pressing social issues. Um, and, uh, you know, we've had amazing member involvement to, to set these policies and to really push for these things. But COP is going to be an amazing opportunity. Um, for the UK. I think of COP a little bit like the Olympics um, in that it's this big kind of festival. Everyone everyone hears about it. it it's, it's on the horizon for a very long time and people kind of work towards it and it, and it creates an amazing time to create a deadline. Um, even if that deadline doesn't really have an awful lot to do with the actual running of the Olympics or the COP, people still see it as a, as a, as a sort of focal point to, to create something, to make something happen, to think about how they can do more. Um, and so we want to see it as an opportunity, the, the COP as an opportunity to raise ambition, to really kind of put the finance agenda on the map. I know the UK government is determined that finance is part of the outcomes of COP. Um, uh, and so as part of that, of course, we're seeing a lot of our members make net zero commitments. Um, and I really hope to see more of those coming up to, to, the, to the actual COP taking place. Um, alongside, of course, the UK's very ambitious net zero targets. Um, we want to see the COP as an opportunity for the UK to promote its leadership on the international stage. Now, that's not just promoting the UK's leadership for the sake of it. It's, it's pushing the UK's leadership because we believe that that will make every other country start saying, well, if the UK can do it, why can't we do it? And it kind of creates this race to the top. Um, and that's exactly what we need on climate change. The challenges, the, the issues that we're dealing with are so pressing and so significant that we need every country to do their bit and do their bit as you know as fast as they can. Um, but what that also corresponds to is the need for really good international alignment on on different things. So whether that's standards, whether it's disclosure rules, whether it's taxonomies, you know, we need to start seeing and, and the COP can be a great place for this to happen. Actually, the G7 as well um, uh, can start thinking about how we bring different countries together to start sharing standards, working together to create new standards um, so that, you know, our members, many of which operate globally, are able to, um, I guess, work together um, uh, or work globally to the same standards, the same definitions um, and, and be really effective on a global level. Great. And you mentioned there how some of this work has already started at, at the G7. And obviously, we've still got a few days to, to go as we're recording today. Um, for everyone listening in July, this uh, I'm com coming to you from back on the 8th of June. Um, but essentially, something we've heard already is this desire for an international alignment on climate risk disclosure. So in line with the TCFD um, and a desire to start that in the G7 and then try and spread it to the G20 um, and beyond. So so when you saw that, James, what, what was your reaction? Yeah, I mean, TCFD disclosure is something that Oxif has been pushing for a really long time. We think it's a, a hugely um, important tool that's got great potential and to support 
uh, investors, our members to, to actually have a much greater understanding of climate risks and where they fall and what the financial impact of that's likely to be. Um, and so we've been calling for many years for TCFD to be rolled out across the UK economy. One of the things we're most excited about is that that's a you know really key policy uh, ask of ours that's, that's now coming to fruition. Um, and we're seeing the FCA, we're seeing um, uh, DWP and others basically mandate um, uh, TCFD disclosure right across the economy. One of the other really exciting pieces in the uh, in the finance minister's um, G7 uh, communique, though, was not only the recognition of TCFD, which is climate related financial disclosures, but recognition and welcoming TNFD, which is the mm -hmm. task force for nature related financial disclosures. Um, something in our policy vision, we've called for the UK to, to, to grab that and to embed that at home in the same way that TCFD is being um, implemented. And that's reflects the fact that following the Dasgupta review, um, which you know is an incredible piece of work, um, and we interviewed Professor Dasgupta um, a couple of weeks ago for our, our spring conference, um, uh, his review really highlighted just how much of a biodiversity and nature problem that we have in the world. Um, you know, if climate change weren't an issue, uh, we would have still be focusing on, on on biodiversity and probably have even more focus on biodiversity as an issue because it is so serious and so significant to all of us uh, in the world. Um, and so the idea that we could potentially also embed TNFD and that this is something that has been you know discussed, debated and, and, and talked about by the G7 finance ministers is really, really important. So yeah, really excited to see that communique come out. And I think it's a, you know, a really important um, recognition of both climate um, nature and disclosures on these things. But of course, the challenge on nature related disclosures is, is just how much data is available um, mm -hmm. and how are we going to create the data sets that allow for really effective disclosure? And that's, I think, a question that the industry is going to have to start to answer. Not a reason to delay. It's a reason to, to say we recognize this isn't going to be perfect on day one um, and we've all got a job to do to try and enhance the data that we have. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I have my fingers crossed on the nature disclosures just because the UK government seemed to be so brought in from the beginning, like it ha has representatives sitting on the task force that actually came off the back of the last budget given by um, Philip Hammond, Spreadsheet Phil, as he was <laughs> known. Um, so it has just kept, seemed to keep going and then Dasgupta followed it up. But as you say, it is that sort of devil's in the detail, really, as I imagine it has been with, with the TCFD as well. Yeah, yeah, actually, you're right. And I think one of the other one of the other key things for us is the extent to which all of this data, you know, we're getting mountains of new data, these disclosures, these TCFD disclosures, but they need to be decision useful in the way that they're framed and formatted. Um, and then they need to be used for decisions um, by the investment community. And that's something that we're that we're looking at right now is, you know, Portfolio managers have a tough job. They've got to be very expert at, you know, understanding in detail, really great depth, the companies and the investments that they're looking to make. This is a whole load of new stuff that's coming down that they're able to use to make investment decisions. But the question is, to what extent are they being used or will they be used to make those decisions? Um, and we think it's so important that the industry you know, work to build the skills of investment managers in particular. And we want to see you know, what role OXIF can play in this um, to help build the skills so that these these disclosures are being used. Um, and so that, you know, for example, when a company is, is producing a 
uh, a Paris transition plan that an investment manager is able to look at that and basically call it out if it's if it's you know not telling the full truth or if it's if it's overly optimistic in various areas. We need we need investment managers to to be very critical and look at these things critically as they're making these decisions. So so yeah, it's so important that we have all these disclosures. It's also really important that they're used effectively to make investment decisions. I wanted to come on to that because over the past few weeks, for as many headlines as I have about, you know, a record green bond issued by a company or a big sustainability linked loan from the business um, community or, or even some of these announcements from G7, we also get um, reports in from NGOs and other organisations looking at financed emissions and how slowly they are actually moving towards net zero or the impact which um, finance activities has on biodiversity and nature, as we've touched on in this conversation um as as well so you've talked there about the importance of you know having people in house that can really scrutinize these or strong partners that that can do this but i wanted to know if there was anything else um that could that could be done and what's what's next for specifically engagement and divestment and for organizations that aren't there yet sort of getting beyond the standalone net zero project uh, product sorry or the ESG aligned product and to a more sustainable holistic strategy and system I know this is a really big question <laughs> no it's a, it's a great question and then I think I'm, I might divide it into two because there's a difference between financed emissions and investments um, and so you know for those of our members that are investors that are um, that are asset managers that are that are dealing on a daily basis with 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 investment decisions a lot of them have committed to net zero which is absolutely brilliant and that's exactly the right thing to do um a lot of them are also now actively considering you know what that means for their business how to create that roadmap of where they of where they get to the milestones on that on that journey um and one of the things we're hearing really consistently um from our members which i really like is that in, uh, the the net zero from an investment perspective is not the same as divestment and i think that that there's a bit of a narrative in the kind of popular press or in the in in politics that divestment and net zero are the same thing and they're not and they shouldn't be um and the, the you know the reason why that's really important is because if you just divest from high polluting assets um and you put all of the funds that you then had into tech stocks or you know low carbon assets all you've done is sold your assets to somebody else. They still exist, you know, they're still there. You possibly, quite possibly, sold them to someone that cares less than you do, that doesn't have a net zero commitment. Um, and so you haven't made any change to the real economy. You haven't you haven't actually achieved the kind of end goal that we're looking for, which is making, you know, change to the economy. So so what what we're working with our members on, our members are really, really committed to do this, is to be really, really active stewards and custodians uh, of, uh, of of their investments um, and to work to get those investments to the point that they transition um, through their stewardship programs and, and, and really active engagement. Now, the, you know, that will achieve a lot of things that will obviously help those companies to continue to add value in in the in a future where the world is moving to net zero um, and so they'll be providing the products and services that are uh, that, that are useful and so they'll continue to be a good proposition um, it will also mean that these these companies start really actively thinking about their own impact on the world and how they can then reduce that but it'll also i think from a uk perspective it's really important that we have uk investors doing this with uk companies because we've got to make sure that our industry base industrial base is actually transitioning in the same rate that the economy is transitioning um, and the reason why that's so important is because if companies haven't made that transition 
the goods and services that people need and want as part of their daily lives will have to come from other companies. Um, and will they be British companies? Will they be here? Will they be will they be elsewhere? How do we maintain um, the economy that we currently have in terms of the the the, the jobs um, and the and the and the, the GDP flows if we don't have a, an economy or business base that's serving the needs of the economy of the future. Now, what's also really important around that is that we actually start to understand more clearly what the economy of the future actually looks like. So I'm not clear at the moment how we move around in 2050, what we eat, how we heat our homes. You know, there's there's, there's some really seriously big questions that, that the answers are not necessarily clear to at the moment. And so what I think we want to, 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 to work on with government is to start unwrapping and unpicking what the industrial strategy of the UK is um, as a net zero economy. We've got a short amount of time to make this transition. So we've got to start planning it quite carefully and thinking about it carefully. And once that that sector by sector plan is developed, then our members can start to think about, um, well, okay, we know that people are going to heat their homes using this type of fuel. Okay, fine. Let's start investing in that direction. We know that people are going to be, you know, traveling in this sort of way. Fine. Let's start making investments in that direction. And that will start helping us to, to move things forward. And of course, divestment is still an option. So if there's a company uh, that that is refusing to respond to investor demands, that, that continues to believe that a high carbon pathway is the right thing to do, then it's very possible and likely that at some point investors will say, do you know what? We've done as much engagement as we can here. We we, we can't take this any further. Um, this company is actually now a risk in our portfolio. We don't think it's going to continue to add value into the medium and long term. We actually need to get out of this company. And that will be the point that investment comes. But I think the engagement piece needs to, uh, divestment comes, the engagement piece really needs to start um, or, or, to, or to be happening as, as a first port of call. What we do need to do, though, is start building public trust that engagement is actually a real thing. Um, you know, I think if you were to ask a, a member of public on the street what they think about when, you know, an investment manager meets a company's management, would they would they imagine that it's a cozy chat and a beer and a, and a posh meal? Or would they actually think that it's really deep, engaged um, discussions? We need to demonstrate and show that, that, that these discussions are real, that they have a really positive impact, that they're, that, that they're achieving things. You know, publishing case studies, highlighting what success has been happening from this, I think is, is, a, is an important thing to build that public trust that engagement is real. And I think the regulators have got a role to play in this too. Um, so that's on the that's on the uh, kind of the investment side. On the on the credit side, I think it's a bit different um, because that is actually where you're putting putting money in directly to help fund something that uh, that or finance something that wasn't going to happen otherwise. Um, okay. And I think that's when invest uh, you know lenders uh, suppose need to take a really critical look at well what are they what are they lending into um, and is it something for the transition is it something for the future or is it something that realistically is not actually a value add for the longer term and i think that is where we really need to start thinking about okay where we where we lend does really shape what the economy looks like um, and 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 i think we've got to start being a bit more careful about where we lend of course. And when you, when you mentioned there that need to prove that engagement is actually happening, I'm just reminded of something I got from BlackRock last year. So I looked it up and for the first time, it actually said how many companies it punished. So it took voting action against um, on climate grounds and how many more it would put on watch. Um, and now that I think of it, I haven't seen anything similar since then. I might have missed it. I might be be wrong. But yeah, just personally, as someone outside of the sector, well, I'd definitely welcome that. Yeah, interesting. I'm not I'm not sure whether they've published that or not, but certainly 
you know, I think this is the sort of thing that we should be getting used to as an industry is publishing how we're how we're, you know, living up to our commitments in in our daily actions with the with the companies that we have investments in. Um, it's so important not just you know for building that trust that this that this is a process that works, but actually getting the transition and making this transition happen. Um, we have a, a really, really powerful role as investors and major shareholders in companies. Um, we have to use that. We have to probably use that as collaboratively as we can um, uh, within within the rules that exist to 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 you know really make the change that we want to see and, and drive the economy that we want. And that's and that's actually one of the really interesting things about where we are right now is that we're no longer in a situation where financiers of sort of saying we we finance the economy as we see it or as it as it comes to us it's now about saying actually we recognize there needs to be fundamental change in the economy we recognize that we have a role to play in that journey um and we want to play our part in that we're not just gonna you know finance what's out there we're gonna we're gonna look for the investments that that correspond to what we see as the future of the economy and help drive the um, drive us the economy the world in that direction and actually, crucially, not just on climate issues, but on a whole range of other environmental and social issues as well. Yeah, a big thank you once again to James. We will, of course, be keeping a close eye on Axis' work in the lead up to COP26. As mentioned, if you're keen to hear more from James, he will be speaking on day two of the ED Sustainable Investor Conference. That is 14th of July, a Wednesday. He's penned a speech for us entitled Getting Ahead of the Curve. What's next and how can we integrate the lessons of sustainable finance into mainstream investing? And that will be taking place at 11.55am on that day. Once again, if you want to register for the conference, the site you want to visit is event.ed.net forward slash investor. We're going to take a short break now before hearing from our other guest speakers at ING and Inspired Energy. Join me after this brief jingle for a deeper dive into climate risk disclosures and transitioning investment portfolios in line with the Paris Agreement. Hello and welcome back to part two of this episode of the Sustainable Business Cover podcast, which is all about green finance, ESG and the TCFD recommendations. After taking a broad look at the policy wish list of the UK's investor community in part one, our guests for part two are going to help us dive a bit more deeply into some specific topics in this ever evolving field. One of these topics is aligning investment portfolios with the Paris Agreement. We know from the UN's 2020 emissions gap report that we're on track for at least three degrees of temperature increase this century, compared with the well below two degrees required by the Paris Accord. We'll also find out in increasingly more detail the role of the finance sector in contributing to this misalignment. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, WWF and Greenpeace published a report revealing that UK banks and asset managers are collectively financing projects emitting 805 million tonnes of greenhouse gases, twice the UK's annual national carbon footprint. Those are figures from 2019. Surely, though, if the finance sector put these investments in high-carbon places before, they could put them in low-carbon places now, stimulating sectors and innovation and supporting the transition to a net zero economy. This is obviously way easier said than done um, and I'm not an expert here, 
but I do know that there is a duty to ensure good returns for customers and clients and also to remember that there is an S in ESG. The transition to net zero needs to be socially just. With all this in mind, it's a great time to be touching base with ING's Global Head of Sustainable Finance, Leonie Shreve. A few years ago, ING pledged to align its 600 billion euro lending book with the Paris Temperature Pathway and developed a tool called Terra to help do so. Um, Terra essentially helps to develop and implement sector-specific targets for engagement and divestment. As of October 2020, Terra had helped ING to reduce its direct exposure to coal by 22%. It has also hugely boosted engagement with companies held in high-carbon sectors including power generation, shipping, cement and steel, residential real estate, automotive, aviation and commercial real estate. In this interview, Leonie provides her learnings from the Terra process in-house and about ING's collaborations to help deliver the Paris Agreement alignment more broadly. She also looks at the role in policies such as taxonomies and disclosure mandates in bringing laggards along with this alignment journey. So here is that recording with Leonie in full. Good afternoon, Leonie. It's a pleasure to catch up with you for the podcast. How are you? I am fine. I really look forward to our conversation. Me too. I think you said you said the last time you were on the podcast, you were actually at at the ING offices in 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 London. So yeah, completely different different at the moment. Yeah, it feels like a long time ago that these kind of things happened. Yeah, but hopefully on the horizon again, provided we don't get another month or more of pushback here here in the in the UK. And yeah, timely to be joining you for our focus on sustainable finance and sustainable investment for this episode and for the for the coming weeks as well. Um, I guess a good place to start is somewhere that we usually start with with ING, which is um, with the Paris Agreement alignment and the Terra tool and methodology designed to to achieve that um, across across ING's work. Um, I read on the company website that it's it's recently been its three year anniversary. Um, so I think a good place to start would be would be on an update on that, especially at a time when so many other banks are now setting net zero targets and figuring out how to get that alignment themselves. Yeah, great. And it's uh, I mean, it's, it's also great to see that so many other players are taking climate action and various commitments are taking place because Definitely, this is not something that we can do alone. So we committed towards the um, the Terra approach, really believe that um, because we think that um, we our impact is really through our financings. So we can do a lot also in our own company to make sure that we address climate change. But by financing our clients and taking climate into account, we can really make the biggest impact. So we've started to steer our portfolio, our 700 billion portfolio, in alignment with the Terra uh, Agreement, which essentially means the Paris Agreement. And we have, as as, uh, you probably know, is that we have uh, covered the sectors that have most impact on the GSG emissions. And for all these sectors, we have developed a methodology together with the 2DI Investing Initiative. They have scientific-based metrics where we can track what kind of technological changes are needed to meet the Paris Agreement. And that is how we look at our portfolio and track on where do we stand? Where does the market stand? Where do we stand? And what do we need to do to steer that further? Um, So we've published also our second progress report last year, which was the first time that we covered all of the sectors that are part of the uh, Terra commitment. 
And you see there also very good progress on how we are moving in that direction. And I think important is really the um, transparency level that we provide there so that you can also externally and just in the public domain see how does that tangibly work if you want to align towards the Paris Agreement. Great. And I know that some other banks are, are using that as well, but I wanted to come back to what you said, which is just that you can't do it alone. And finance is ultimately an, an ecosystem um, as as well. And one of the recent things from ING that I covered was this working on the new climate aligned finance working group for the steel sector, um, which brings together not only yourselves, but other major investors in that sector to work towards yeah, a shared set of, of values on, on climate action. Um, so I wanted to know sort of when it's valuable for a bank or an insurer to have their own commitment on emissions here and when it's appropriate to, to collaborate. So perhaps on this sector based basis. Yeah, very good question. And uh, yeah, as I mentioned, I think collaboration is really key in on the climate side, because if the market is not moving, we cannot move. If consumers are not moving, our clients cannot move. So it's an ecosystem where indeed everyone needs to move. And that's also why we developed our Terra approach at the time as an open source mechanism to make sure that if others would want to join the same methodology, uh, it would be open to them. And that's also what we've seen. We've seen after our commitment that we uh, had a couple of banks also joining us uh, for the Katowice uh, commitment. So after the uh, summit, climate summit at Katowice and um, together to really define also on the methodologies. How are we going about some of the challenging sectors and how do we make sure indeed there's a common understanding and transparency in the market uh, to make that happen. Similarly, indeed, we have also joined the, um, the steel initiative, uh, which we're chairing, uh, to really make sure that also there, with the whole industry itself, we come up with good parameters to really have that sector also moving into alignment with the Paris Agreement. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to seeing what, what comes out of that steel. Obviously, I think 7% of global emissions or, or or similar around that mark. I'll have to look back at my my articles, but really interesting initiative and I hope it bears fruit. Um, and you mentioned there that need for everyone to move and for that to be happening at the right pace and at the right time. Um, and obviously one of the biggest levers for, for making that happen beyond just coalitions of the willing in terms of, of business is, is policy. Um, and we've seen a fair bit of movement here since we last spoke. They say a week is a long time in politics, so a year, I think, since we were last on the podcast. Um, lots happening, um, definitely. So I wanted to ask, as, as a representative of a bank with operations in the UK and the EU, what your take is on the green finance taxonomy? So the EU now has one, it's just fine tuning with. Um, the UK has recently signalled its intention to develop its own one, um, but not much in the way of, of timelines yet. Yeah, I know indeed we've seen a lot of developments on the regulatory side, on the climate risk side, but also indeed on various commitments. We have seen indeed the taxonomy recently. Um, so it, a lot is happening on that front as well. And before that, we all already saw uh, quite some standardization in the market. We have also pushed the agendas, for example, for the green bonds principles, but also for the sustainability linked loans and for the green loans. Uh, through really the industry as, as such. We also developed uh, together with others the Poseidon principles for the shipping industry, 
Um, so you see already that before the regulatory developments uh, took off so fast that a lot was happening. And I really encourage also that we have more standardization in the market. And I've also put that as an uh, ambition already more often, that it's really good to uh, join forces there and to have also from a policy point of view, uh, a similar approach across the globe. Um, so I'm also hoping indeed that uh, while even the EU taxonomy has already an impact outside of the EU, because if you want to reach out to uh, EU investors for on the green bonds, you already need to abide by the EU taxonomy, even though you may be based in, in Asia. Um, so it's also an encouragement, I think, that um, for all the other countries that are looking at developing regulations and taxonomies, um, that they seek alignment with one global standard. Um, so I'm very hopeful that indeed there is also going to be this harmonized approach globally. Is the idea of, of sort of one one set of taxonomy not undercutting the others, I presume? Well, there can be differences in uh, also if you look at certain regions, if um, they are, um, there are various developments, of course, ongoing and various maturity levels of how sustainable the business is. So there may be uh, variances in the taxonomies, but I think in general there should be uh, one direction and one sort of um, harmonized standard um, that fits all and that doesn't contradict each other. Great, I understand that completely. And and you mentioned there that regulation has been moving and something else that's becoming more standardised is this climate risk um, side of things. So we've had an update on mandatory TCFD aligned disclosures here in the UK. We've had the rest of the G7 committing to have similar mandates in the next few years, just waiting on the specifics from some of those nations. Um, and often when, when we talk about this, we're talking to you know end user businesses who are looking at their investors looking at their banks so they're asking so how can we disclose this and what do banks want so i was hoping to ask you from the other side of the coin so what what do banks want from from business in terms of climate risk disclosure at this point in time well, it goes even beyond climate risk, I think, and the taxonomy is a good example there, uh, that also our clients will have to disclose their OPEX, CAPEX and revenues that are aligned with the taxonomy. But indeed, on the climate uh, risk side, there are a lot of developments too, also driven partly by regulations. Um, so you have the ECB stepping up, the EBA stepping up, so the European Banking Authority. And uh, it is also important, I think, that if you want to take really uh, climate risk seriously, you have to fully integrate it into your business. And from a TCFD perspective, you have an umbrella where you can fit the opportunities underneath, you can fit the risks uh, underneath, the governance and the reporting, and really making sure that all those elements are connected to each other and that you can make it very tangible on where you are, how is the portfolio moving, how are you making decisions when it comes to sectors that may be prone to more uh, climate risks than others. And having that transparency and really this tangible approach will be very helpful uh, for the banking uh, sector to give insight on where do we stand towards our stakeholders, but of course also the other way around. How do we manage our portfolio that it's addressing the climate risk? So we need to also have this information from our clients to be available. 
I've covered just this week two stories about having good transition plans and the needs of that and that chimes with what you said I think so it's not just measuring it and saying oh well we have a target it's about how are you going to get between the now and and the target in a lot of detail. Yeah no definitely and um, yeah I always think that um, it is very important indeed to have those commitments and to have indeed the overall umbrella of TCFD but what really makes a difference is if you can show how that tangibly is implemented, whether that is by doing certain types of deals, transition or accelerating specifically on climate investments. Um, but in general, um, making it really tangible, that is key for the success and the only way also that we can really address climate risk. And I feel like there we're looking sort of forward for the first time. We've been doing a lot of looking back in this discussion, which is probably to be expected, seeing as you were last on the podcast about a year ago. But obviously we're recording this with less than five months to go until COP26. So I'd love to wrap up by taking a look to the future um, and to hear a little bit more about how ING is is preparing. Yeah, and maybe first also on your point on forward looking, um, that is one of the points that I find also very important. So you saw traditionally that banking models were very much looking backward when it comes to risk. But now with climate risk, sustainability opportunities and really steering the portfolio towards change to be resilient in the future, you really need to be forward looking. And I like it also that there are a lot of commitments now out there in the market and you see a lot of movements now coming up towards COP26 of governments, of investors, of banks, of companies. So a lot of commitments towards indeed, yes, we need to really uh, take this seriously and come up with tangible agreements uh, at the uh, at the climate summit. So ING definitely is also um, uh, looking forward to that. And you see already that um, we've recently also published an, uh, a report together with Longitude, an FT company. And you see there also that climate change is really one of the top priorities of the uh, ESG investor community, where um, 52% also says that it is really top priority. And uh, you see also that our client base where it says that 60% of them says that um, transformational efforts to reach sustainability has really become a top priority. So in general, I think that is a very positive signal also towards the conversations at the COP. The Paris Agreement was already considered to be really ambitious, but now it's really also delivering on how are we taking this forward? It's still a huge dilemma, climate change. And it's something that where, again, I would can only emphasize, we need to do this together. So on all fronts, we need to have those strong commitments, but in particular, also really the, uh, the tangible deliverables on how do we put this in action? And I think our Terra approach, where we really make that insightful, is an example where you can see, indeed, it's not only a commitment, but we also showcase on how we are putting our portfolio in motion. Thanks to Leonie once again for her time and insight on these topics, which I'm sure are going to be front of mind for many listening at the moment. This is the point where I'd usually go to Matt and say, Matt, what's your take on the, um, the whole engagement versus divestment argument? Um, but I'm beginning to think that he's on leave today just to tease us, to make as many of you come along to the conference as possible, um, to hear his work as chair and to put some questions to him yourself. 
Anyway, Matt or no Matt, we still have a third and final guest speaker to welcome on to this episode for our sponsors at Inspired Energy. Our guest is Inspired Energy's Director of ESG Disclosures, Rosemary DeVos. Rosemary is a seasoned sustainability consultant and guest lecturer who joined the Inspired team earlier this year to head up its rapidly growing work in the ESG disclosure space. In this interview, we talk about the cocktail of reasons for ESG rocketing up the agenda in terms of business, especially financial businesses, um, and in policy too, including improved science, changing investor and consumer demands, and of course, the fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic. Rosemary also provides some practical advice on getting started with one of the most popular disclosure frameworks, the TCFD recommendations. That's the Task Force on Climate Related Disclosures. So here is that interview with Rosemary in full. A very warm welcome to the podcast, Rosemary. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Lovely to meet you again. And lovely to see you. Are you dialing in from home today? I am indeed. Remote working. Yeah, same same for us us here. Um, a little bit longer for us actually, as our publishers having a, a refit. So very excited to get back. Um, I know that we've worked together before, and that Edie and Inspired have worked on several projects before, especially over the past year or so. Um, but I'd love to just start the conversation by hearing a little bit more about yourself specifically, um, about what your role as director of ESG disclosures in ca- entails, um, and how you came to work with the Inspired team. Of course, yes. Well, as a company, Inspired is at a very interesting stage of its evolution. Um, It's been a rather innovative and dynamic company over the last 20 years or so, but increasingly it's focused on the fast progress of ESG and the resulting opportunities and global developments where our products and services can make a material difference. Um, Naturally, the services it provides to um, uh, its clients have been applied to our own business. And that's the standpoint we come from. We've gone through scope one, scope two and scope three. We're acknowledging publicly where our ESG credentials uh, require improvements. And we're also making our own voluntary TCFD disclosure. And that's why I'm confident we're in a very good position to support other companies on their ESG journey, whether they're existing energy clients of ours or new clients to Inspired. So my role as director of ESG Disclosures um, is focused on bringing together the expertise of our optimization and regulatory services teams mm-hmm. uh, within Inspired's main energy business, um, um, alongside my growing team of ESG staff who have a range of contemporary, complementary, sector-based and scientific knowledge and skills. Um, we're delivering the mandatory and voluntary disclosures pertinent to ESG strategy for listed companies and large asset owners in particular. Um, So while Inspired is a a market leader in energy optimization, our work delivering uh, ESOS and SECA reports to our clients provides a scope one and two inventories as the basis for understanding direct emissions. Uh, This leads us seamlessly into providing scope three reports and carbon balance sheets too. So our scope three and carbon balance sheet services they delve more deeply into the carbon footprint of a company, its hubs and locations, and that of its supply chain. And we're now working with a number of clients on this kind of basis now. 
So you asked me, you asked me why I decided to join the company. Well, that was made on the basis that the ESG services division was evolving. And having worked for both large and smaller corporations undergoing transformational change, um, including post supply chain and logistics and energy distribution in the past, um, coupled with a background um, in ESG and sustainability um, knowledge, um, particularly looking at corporate ratings, I could see how my role would achieve the, the greatest benefits to our clients and in turn help them deliver their best um, in terms of more sustainable outcomes for, for their own stakeholders. And that includes their shareholders. Um, so in particular, I'm working on our suite of ESG products and services, um, including um, the much famed TCFD disclosure, which uh, will be a mandatory requirement for listed companies and large asset owners from April next year. That's April 2022. Um, mm -hmm. I hope that uh, gives you a bit of a picture. So, um, yeah, I'm very pleased to be at Inspired. It's it's uh, it's definitely um, definitely making progress in the ESG space and it's a very dynamic place to work. I think that's a nice snapshot there. And I was going to ask you what some of the biggest trends you're seeing in ESG disclosures specifically. I mean, we've seen a lot on the social side with COVID-19, but I wanted to ask specifically um, about trends in climate because this is a sort of climate finance and disclosures themed podcast episode. Um, and you mentioned the TCFD there. So I'm assuming that would be one of your answers to that question. Well, naturally, climate change is the ongoing pressure for all organisations, uh, but especially larger asset owners uh, with international or even global interests and physical hubs uh, all, all, all over the world. Making TCFD disclosure mandatory in the UK next year will, will allow all stakeholders, including investors, shareholders, the ability to review all disclosing companies' profiles um, set against those TCFD recommendations, which cover governance, strategy, risks and opportunities, and metrics and targets. Um, that balanced against the company's stated intentions for their shorter and longer term future in relation to climate scenarios is what's important here. Uh, that means the forecast um, temperature change and potential material impacts that those temperature changes could have on a company's financial position. Um, regarding direct action, more companies are seeking to reduce their emissions in a, in a show and tell way, including greater clarity on their choices of and reasons behind offsetting. Um, the ethos behind the aim of reaching carbon neutrality um, as the formative step on the net zero roadmap is to reduce emissions first and not simply to lean on the prospect of shifting the problem to an overseas afforestation project, for example, um, the efficacy of which may not be easily verified. Um, rather than take a jaundiced view of offsetting, I'm not meaning to do that here, um, there are also new carbon sequestration opportunities closer to home. Um, we're seeing that, um, that opportunity emerging. There are rewilding projects. That's particularly important to me um, being in the UK and favouring the UK's natural landscape, for example. Um, we can actually visit those opportunities and verify for ourselves. So that's my thinking on the topic. Why go overseas when we can look locally? Um, Everyone in the world, of course, now, very unfortunately, is aware of COVID-19 and therefore the public health emergency arising from that, both as a crisis and as an ongoing threat to what we might consider having a normal way of life as we enjoyed before, perhaps 
September 2019 to date. Mm -hmm. um, therefore, public health and how we fund and, and manage the health needs of the population globally, uh, as well as in the UK specifically, must adjust. And that goes without saying for all countries, as most countries, if not all, have been or will be affected by this virus or strains of it um, going, going forward. Um, another most important area is diversity, equality and inclusion. They're very high on the world stage right now. Uh, as ESG professionals, we have an important role to play in this area by reviewing a company's profile based on human capital management, for example. And this leads us to identify, identify gaps in um, disclosure, including the percentage of women and ethnic minorities on boards, as well as gender pay gap issues. Um, we all know that much of the problem is historic and cultural, so it will take time to change. But with investors increasingly conscious of such mass matters, um, choices against investing in companies unwilling to disclose their position on diversity, equality and inclusion, um, uh, or uh, if they're unwilling to, to make improvements in those areas, well, well, they may have implications for them down the road. Um, I think what much of what I have mentioned just there is gaining ground in the UK and Europe, as well as uh, in the US. Uh, in the US specifically, the Security and Exchange Commission uh, who regulate US securities uh, markets and protect investors, um, they're asking companies to report on these impacts, whether they're actual or potential. Um, and at the same time, um, we're seeing far more emphasis um, on this uh, in, in other countries too. So with the US joining in with Europe and the UK, very shortly, um, any company with uh, international interests will will have to start shifting their position on diversity, equality and inclusion, or they'll just be left out. Uh, I think it shows the dynamic nature of materiality aspects that could affect any business at any time. So we're looking at climate change, we're looking at um, health problems, and we're looking at diversity, equality and inclusion being those uh, material uh, factors very, very high up on the agenda. Mm, I guess that's probably what you would expect with the events of 2020 um, in, in mind there. And you mentioned about how things are changing because of collaboration and mandates across diversity and inclusion, but it's the same for TCFD. Um, so as we've touched on, this is soon to be mandated in the UK and then subsequently across the rest of the, the G7. And I'm sure we'll have people listening that have already started thinking about this. Um, but aren't sure about how to, to do best practice, essentially. Um, as evidenced in the TCFD's own annual status report, the latest edition of that. Um, so I've got a copy here and it said that essentially the quality of reporting has on average improved just 6% since 2017. Um, so I'd love to hear what you see as the biggest challenges to improving climate risk reporting um, and some potential solutions to those challenges as well. Well, thank you. Yes. Um, two of the more important issues surrounding TCFD disclosure, to my mind, um, particularly that we're picking up from the market, are that firstly, it's perceived as very complicated to achieve. Um, and secondly, that it's really expensive to undertake the necessary internal reviews to achieve compliance. Well, in fact, um, what I found um, uh, is rather intriguing because most companies are aware of GRI standards to start with and are already working on introducing and embedding ESG fundamentals that relate closely to those standards. 
TCFD makes recommendations of its own, but these are still aligned closely with GRI standards, meaning that there is a strong um, correlation, alignment, and a common thread, if you will, between TCFD and GRI. Um, so that provides a certain confidence, um, I would have thought, um, that every standard is linked in some way, and therefore it's not such a complicated picture. Um, however, one even more significant point that I've discovered today is that many companies do not have any or sufficient dedicated staff with the right type of ESG knowledge and experience to deliver against mandatory disclosure objectives. And that is really where Inspired and our ESG team can, can help. Um, we have a dedicated ESG team focused solely on providing the support and deliverables that companies require, both for mandatory disclosures like TCFD and as a voluntary choice um, so that companies can disclose uh, in order to improve their ESG credentials. And of course, that has a knock on effect positively um, for the perception uh, by their public audiences. So those are the, the, the main things as far as I can see. I think they're, um, yes, they're fundamental, but they're not insurmountable. So um, people just need to be more encouraged to look internally and where they can't find the, the, the right type of staff to help them deliver against those, particularly those mandatory um, disclosures, which have a deadline, uh, as an example, TCFD, then, then come to us, we'd be more than happy to help because uh, we've done it for ourselves. And I was going to flag here that essentially this podcast we have been working on as part of a bigger master series with Inspired Energy. So there's also a masterclass webinar that you can catch up with on demand. And there is also an ED Explains guide to TCFD disclosures. So a lot more of these practical challenges and solutions are detailed there. Um, if you're listening to this via the ED site, I will put links to those assets in, in the copies there. So seeing as we've already got quite a lot um, on the practicalities, the how, what, when and why. Um, I wanted to chat to you, Rosemary, for a moment about going beyond um, disclosures or, or transparency. So it's part of sustainability, but ultimately for a lot of companies, it might be the beginning, um, but it should never really be the end point if you want to go past greenwashing. Um, so I'd love to hear your advice on how companies can make sure they're going beyond PR, beyond initial disclosures, and then using that to inform how they should actually change strategies and operations? Yes, well, um, in my experience, uh, the concept of sustainability for a business always comes first. And as a company or any organisation seeks to evolve on its ESG path in line with global trends, it is in the context of the more macro environmental challenges that are facing us all. Mm -hmm. uh, mostly these larger issues are being addressed by um, non-governmental organisations such as UN agencies and the World Bank and more sector focused entities forming out of that guidance, including principles for responsible investment, the PRI um, and other smaller but as effective organisations such as the Green Finance Institute in the UK that focuses on the City of London, its partners, its members and the global financial outlook. Mm -hmm. um, clearly, we're in a time of evolutionary change and only those companies who are planning their transformation or, or, or in the throes of transformation now will survive. 
Uh, that means bringing sustainability into the heart of a business, and that could uh, involve um, all of the um, disclosures that we're talking about, but a transformational change at a strategic level. Um, the standards and the disclosures allow a company to look at itself differently. Um, so to my mind, it's, it's far more simple. We have to evolve or we have to expect disappointment. And that means finding the gaps in a company's ESG story and plugging those gaps with verifiable solutions to material issues. And while this may seem an arduous task, it is totally achievable. Um, we can reduce the burden. We can help support you on your roadmap, for example, to net zero um, along your business's sustainability journey. So Inspired is really here to help. And, and yes, we, we'd, uh, we'd welcome the opportunity to help you move forward. Well, Rosemary, that's the call to action from so many reports I've been getting recently. So even the CCC's um, report in, in recent weeks essentially said we do have time to act and we need to act now, but it really does have to be now. So I think that's a fantastic note to end on. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. We appreciate appreciate being involved with Edie, Sarah, and it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks once again to Rosemary, our last but by no means our least guest for this episode. As mentioned in that section, this podcast interview is part of a wider um, Edie Masters series of content hosted by Edie and Inspired and covering all things TCFD alignment. Also in that series is an Edie Explains Guide downloadable report featuring practical advice on TCFD aligned reporting and there's a masterclass webinar that is free to stream and available now walking us through two in-depth case studies um, that's Inspired Energy's own journey to TCFD disclosures and that of British American Tobacco otherwise known as BAT. Both of these resources are free to access at a time to suit you. You can grab a copy of the report at ed.net forward slash downloads that's ed.net forward slash downloads and to stream the masterclass visit ed.net forward slash webinars that's ed.net forward slash webinars. As I said Rosemary was the last guest for today's episode and I'm personally keen to sprint away from my laptop get in my garden and attempt to use my sun loungers for more than five minutes before this heat that we're having today inevitably breaks into yet another storm or a shower. Um, but before I sign off, I do just want to recap that this episode is a precursor to our Sustainable Investor Conference on Tuesday 13th and Wednesday 14th of July. So if you've enjoyed listening, you won't want to miss this one. Once again, you can find full details of our agenda and speaker list and reserve your tickets at event.ed.net slash investor. That's event.ed.net slash investor. And I hope to see as many of you there as possible, virtually, of course, as we wait for the delayed lifting of lockdown restrictions here in England. But until then, it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.